Um, it is my distinct honor to introduce our second uh, speaker this afternoon, Dr. Lance Kreigsfeld. Um, Dr. Kreigsfeld came to us uh, from Syracuse University. No more uh, basketball uh, jokes. Um, and he earned his uh, master's degree here at Villanova in 1995. Under, under the direction of Dr. Ingeborg Ward, Ward his, um, his thesis was entitled The Effects of Prenatal Alcohol Exposure on Reproductive Capacity in Female Rats. Uh, Lance went on to Johns Hopkins University where he worked in the laboratory of Randy Nelson, um, which, which was and, and continues to be, although it's no longer at Johns Hopkins, uh, one of the truly cutting-edge uh, laboratories in the area of behavioral endocrinology. Um, Dr. Krigsfeld uh, earned his PhD at Hopkins in 1999 and then did a postdoc at Columbia University for the next uh, three or four years. He has published over 75 journal articles and book chapters. These appear in a very impressive uh, variety of top-shelf scholarly journals that are in the domains of, of psychology, but also neuroscience and medicine. Um, his work has been funded by several different organizations with, uh, 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 I think, the biggest uh, piece of funding uh, coming from the National, Institute, National Institutes of Health and he serves on uh, a number of editorial boards, um, including for the journal Endocrinology and others, has reviewed papers for at least 28 different scholarly journals, and has served as a grant reviewer for the National Science Foundation and NSERC, which is the, uh, the uh, primary funding agency for scientific research in Canada. Um, Dr. Krigsfeld, uh, um, Joined the faculty at the University of California at Berkeley, one of the very top psychology departments in the world, by the way, um, in the year 2005, where he uh, holds an appointment in both, or holds appointments in the psychology department and the Helen Wills Neuroscience Institute. And um, um, belated congratulations are also in order for Dr. Krigsfeld because he was promoted to associate professor and awarded tenure uh, about a year ago. So without further ado, I want to introduce Dr. Lance Kreigsfeld, who is going to tell us about timing is everything, circadian implications for reproductive and mental health. Take it away, Lance. So thank you, Mike, for that very kind introduction. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. I uh, greatly appreciate the invitation from uh, Tom and the organizing committee. Um, it's, it's particularly nostalgic and important for me um, because uh, Villanova holds a near and dear place to my heart. Um, I came to the master's program essentially not knowing what to do with the rest of my life and um, Inga and Byron Ward in the Villanova Master's Program were essential for helping me find what I wanted to do and uh, basically uh, became interested in reproductive biology and psychology, uh, the psychological nature of reproductive biology while I was here and uh, that formed a trajectory of my career. 
Um, what I'm going to do today is talk to you about uh, sort of a mix of uh, two fields, circadian biology and reproductive biology. Um, what I'd like to start off with is hopefully giving you an understanding and appreciation for the implications for circadian health or the timing of your bodies uh, for health and disease, uh, health, uh, promoting optimal health and preventing disease states. Um, I want to give you a little bit about uh, basically a broad brushstroke of some of the work that we've been doing to give you a flavor for uh, how you approach questions in behavioral endocrinology or neuroscience in case anyone might be interested in going into that field and conclude with some recent data um, showing the implications for your uh, mental health and learning and memory. All right, so everyone is probably familiar with uh, Walter Cannon who coined the term homeostasis in 1932 in his book, The Wisdom of the Body. Uh, homeostasis means standing the same. And he came up with this term to describe the exquisite precision in which countless bodily systems are maintained within finely tuned operating limits, which is essential for the uh, promotion of optimal health and prevention of disease states. And we all know about uh, that we want to keep <laughs> systems in our body at a finely tuned operating level, but we, what we often ignore is the uh, temporal component to this and that it's necessary that each individual process in our bodies, whether it be in our brain or whether it be in the periphery, is coordinated with an optimal time of day or night. And what the circadian system does is it coordinates homeostatic drive to ensure that each individual process, which you could count about 80,000 processes, is, is estimated at what your body is producing uh, at any given time, um, need to be coordinated on a daily schedule. And so what I'm going to suggest, and at the risk of uh, post-mortemly offending uh, Walter Cannon, is that we should think about a temporal component to this and uh, consider temporal homeostasis as being an, an important component of physiological health. Um, pretty much anything that you can measure will show a circadian rhythm. In fact, if you could tell me something that doesn't oscillate with a circadian rhythm, uh, that would be great because it would be a wonderful finding um, and we could publish together. Um, <laughs> so virtually anything that you could think of measuring, you could measure how uh, you could time intervals of tapping your finger, you could look at optical reaction time, you could look at your sleep-wake cycle, which is an obvious one that you see depicted here. But virtually all your hormones, which is what I'm particularly interested in, well, all of your hormones will show a clear circadian pattern. And um, do we have a pointer or using the computer? If you uh, push the red button on the whole, uh, there you go, the red one. It's not a great pointer, but. Where is it pointing? Oh, there we go. Uh, it's a little light. Um, so basically, you can see that there's pronounced rhythms and hormones in your body from cortisol, which is involved in energy mobilization, urinary potassium excretion, uh, adrenaline, uh, and, they, and growth hormone. Importantly, you can see that they all peak, they have peaks and troughs that differ uh, relative to one another. And this is called the phase relationship among rhythms. And this is particularly critical for how we function. I like to think about it like a volleyball game with two players where uh, typically one player will set the ball up and then if the timing is correct, the other person will be able to slam it down and that would be the most effective strategy. And a lot of the rhythms in your body work this way that the uh, 
phase relationship among rhythms is extremely critical for optimal functioning. And if that phase relationship is destroyed, then your body basically falls apart. And we're familiar with this from jet lag um, relatively acutely. Let's say you flew from here to China, for example. What's that, a nine hour jet lag? Um, basically, you know that you feel general malaise, gastrointestinal problems, um, you just don't feel well. And in the short term, you say, that's fine, I'll catch up to the new time zone. But what we're essentially doing in today's society, we don't respect sleep hygiene, um, and we're not sleeping at the same time of day, we're not sleeping the appropriate amount of hours that we should, and we're destroying this uh, basic temporal homeostasis in our systems. And when you're jet lagged, you typically, the assumption is that we feel poorly because of the fact that our um, circadian system or an internal timing system is just not synchronized with the new time zone and we have to wait for it to catch up. Um, what happens when you're catching up to the new time zone is something unusual in that each rhythm catches up at its own different rate. So you think about these formerly harmonious 80,000 processes in your body going on at a very specific phase relationship. Now each process is catching up to the new time zone at a different rate, completely destroying that uh, former harmony. And it leads to a variety of health concerns. Um, if you are a shift worker, poor sleep hygiene, most of the studies have been performed <laughs> on shift workers because they're relatively chronically jet lagged. And you could see a variety of um, um, health problems from psychological to uh, physiological. Uh, you can see cognitive deficits and brain atrophy, which is pretty scary, and I'll show you some data at the end of the talk that speaks to that. Um, diabetes, ulcers, higher incidence of cancer. So there's, uh, in fact, the World Health Organization listed um, shift work as a carcinogen in 2007 because the evidence became overwhelming that uh, individuals who are shift workers have up to a 50% increase in certain types of cancers, particularly breast cancer. Um, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, patho psychological patholo pathologies, particularly uh, depression and bipolar disorder are exacerbated um, following disruptions of the clock. Um, I guess the worst one of all being death. Um, this was a study looking at uh, older mice, and it turns out that older mice can't handle uh, basically uh, two jet lags a week. That would be equivalent uh, of a flight from Paris to New York. Uh, and uh, basically die as a result. Um, just to give you an appreciation of the importance of our physiology and how this could be applied to treatment, uh, there's an evolving field called chronopharmacokinetics where it considers that, and this differs among individuals, but in general, if we're on a regular sleep-wake cycle, you could predict the absorption, distribution, metabolism, and elimination of any drug based upon um, or based upon various physiological markers. And this is a study, um, and this speaks to the last talk, with the prevalence of asthma in children today. This is a very important component of how we should consider their treatment. Uh, theophylline is a drug that's typically used to treat childhood asthma. And you could see that the way that the dose stays in the system, depending on when you gave it, varies markedly depending on just the time of day you give it. So if you give a 6 a.m. dosage, it rises in the system to a relatively low level and falls off after a certain period of time. This is the exact same dose. Instead of giving it 6 a.m., given at 9 p.m., you can see it rises in the system to a much greater level and stays there for a longer period of time. 
So this is particularly critical because theophylline is typically used in combination with a rescue inhaler that contains epinephrine, and it's, uh, not, uh, it's very dangerous for children to abuse epinephrine because um, you could die as a result. Um, this is a field that has become prominent because of the fact that there's such a strong link between the circadian system and cancer biology. Um, and that's uh, basically considering chemotherapy toxicity based upon time of day. And you'll see that you could uh, consider this and use it as a treatment approach. If you could figure out, uh, which is being done here in mice, uh, these are different chemotherapeutic agents used to treat a variety of cancers. And basically their, their toxicity depends upon time of day. So uh, things like the cisplatins or cyclophosphamide, you can see that they, each individual drug has its own uh, circadian time at which the <coughs> highest dose can be tolerated. And early clinical trials in humans, what they did was they took the mice data, and because mice are nocturnal, and we are diurnal, or so we're active during the day, mice are active at night, they flip-flopped this 12 hours and said if the uh, mice could tolerate the dose the best at 12, uh, well, at uh, 6, then we would tolerate the dose best at uh, midnight. All right, so here's some of the uh, data that uh, show the beneficial effects. And again, this is the same dose, well, it could be the same dose of chemotherapy or it could be a greater dose of chemotherapy. There's two different reasons. Uh, which I, uh, I'd be glad to talk about afterward for why you could get uh, better uh, benefits of uh, chemotherapy based on just delivering at, a most at the most effective time of day. So, say, so this is a chemotherapy either delivered uh, with a flat or not paying attention to what time of day you're giving it versus paying attention to what time of day you're giving it based on data. And with these very horrible cancers, so children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, um, they have an 80% five-year survival rate with when you pay attention to the time at which you give the chemotherapy, and it drops down to 40% with uh, traditional chemotherapy and other horrible cancer, uh, metastatic colorectal carcinoma, you again double your chances of survival simply by changing the time at which chemotherapy is administered. Um, for those of you who unfortunately know people who have been treated with chemotherapy, the side effects are often uh, more dangerous than the cancer itself. Um, you could die from the chemotherapy and it's a horrible uh, treatment that results in um, uh, numerous side effects. Um, so uh, if you look at just the effect, the side effects and paying attention to either just giving it whenever that, that time permits or versus when uh, the optimal time. Hospitalizations for toxicity drops from 31% to 10%. Severe mucositis, which is sores in the mouth, which, make, which are extremely painful and make it difficult to eat, dropped from a whopping 76%, so most people expect to get these when they are treated with chemotherapy, down to 14%. Functional impairments like peripheral sensory neuropathy or numbness in the extremities drops from 31 to 16. And the tumor response uh, goes from 29 to 51 in this particular study. So obviously, hopefully I've convinced you at least with these broad brushstrokes that we should consider cancer biology not only in medicine but in our own lives because uh, basically maintaining healthy circadian function is important as uh, maintaining anything else. You could predict um, the uh, mortality of 
cancer patients and other kinds of patients simply by looking at the amplitude of their circadian rhythm. If they have a high amplitude behavioral circadian rhythm, they live significantly longer than those individuals that are not sleeping and waking at the appropriate time. All right, so what my work is interested in is determining the mechanisms by which uh, circadian rhythms are controlled to contribute to disease states. And the main clock in the brain that controls circadian rhythms is called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SEN. It's this tiny little structure located at the base of the brain. It's only about 10,000 cells on each side across mammalian species. Um, so it's relatively tiny, relative, uh, relatively tiny compared to the rest of the brain. And it's controlling every one of those rhythms that I told you about. 80,000 rhythms in your body being generated on a circadian schedule, controlled by this master clock here. In humans, the clock is in the exact same location. So just to ground you, you're looking at the front of the brain uh, in a coronal section or a frontal section and just cutting the brain back this way and looking in from the front. Um, that's the human brain, which is probably a little easier to ground. This is the rodent brain. And uh, RSEN is in the exact same location, uh, directly above the optic chiasm. All right, so one of the things I'm particularly interested in is if the pattern of hormone secretion or the timing of hormone secretion is critical for normal health and functioning, then we should see that women would be uh, specifically affected because a multitude of different hormones are necessary in a specific pattern to stimulate ovulation, to maintain pregnancy, and uh, to ensure that the pregnancy um, uh, progresses normally. And if you look at women who are either shift workers, often uh, female flight attendants traveling across time zones repeatedly, what you see is they have a regular menstrual cycle. Sometimes they stop menstruating uh, altogether, um, reduce fertility, and increase spontaneous abortion rate. Um, so they basically have very difficult times getting pregnant. When they do, they often don't carry the pregnancy to full term. And so what we uh, look at in part is how uh, are hormones of the reproductive axis controlled and, uh, and what is their importance for female health? And the reason that we use this as a model system is because if you want to learn how all those multitude, that multitude of processes in your brain and body are controlled by a circadian clock, you can't look at everything and then gain information. You choose a tractable model system, study that, and then uh, see how it generalizes to other systems of control. And the reproductive axis makes an excellent model system because it's highly tractable. We know a lot about it. And, um, and uh, we could follow the circuitry uh, that uh, the SCN works on to control uh, basically ovulation, which you'll see is a highly timed process. Um, I guess the mouse doesn't work. Uh, hopefully, you could at least see the red dot a little bit. Um, so just to ground you, the reproductive axis, the main player at the level of the hypothalamus is called gonadotropin-releasing hormone, or GNRH. Uh, those neurons send their projections uh, to the anterior pituitary, and they cause the this uh, generates the secretion of uh, what are collectively called the gonadotropins, luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone. And particularly, we'll focus on luteinizing hormone because this goes through the bloodstream, acts on the ovaries to, generate, to uh, stimulate the secretion of estrogen. 
And one of the problems that we uh, began to tackle was something that was around for essentially 40 years, uh, remained a mystery. Um, uh, some of my colleagues might suggest it still remains a mystery, but I'm going to suggest it doesn't. Um, so what, we, what happens with the ovulatory cycle is that um, once a follicle is selected for development with an egg inside, inside the ovary, it generates increasing amounts of estrogen over the course of the cycle. And uh, one thing I want to mention on the previous slide is that this whole access is regulated by a negative feedback mechanism. So estrogen uh, feeds back to the brain uh, to control its own secretion. So if estrogen levels are too high, it'll feed back to the top level of the axis and keep it in check. And so what's happening during most of the ovulatory cycle is this process. You can see here that even very low levels of estrogen in the beginning of the cycle are capable of completely suppressing luteinizing hormone. And then after, this is the time of ovulation, which I'll explain in a moment. And then following ovulation, again, very low levels of estrogen can completely suppress the axis. And this, we know, occurs through a negative feedback mechanism. And so early studies in the 70s, 80s, probably up to the 90s, believed that the GnRH system was where estradiol worked to regulate negative feedback. Turns out that this system doesn't express the receptors that are responsible for receiving the estrogen message. So it becomes a much more difficult question is what is the system upstream that regulates this process? And that's one of the components we're interested in. Now, at the time of ovulation, what happens is estrogen completely switches its role. Um, formerly providing negative feedback, not only does negative feedback fail at this time, but estrogen is, is necessary to produce that big burst of LH which will cause the egg to be released from its follicle. Okay, so there's a complete switch in the role of estrogen that occurs in a precisely timed fashion. Uh, in the species I work in, Syrian hamsters, they ovulate every 96 hours on the button, so um, <laughs> you know exactly when they're ovulating. Um, and what we're really interested in is what causes this to switch. If you read any textbook in reproductive biology and look at ovulation, what they say is that there's a switch from negative feedback to positive feedback and the surge is generated. So then you flip to the next page and see how that works and there's nothing there. Um, and that's the way it's been for the last 40 years. Um, what we know is that this time process is stimulated by the SCN. So the SCN turns on the positive end at the time of the surge. Without the SCN, you can't get ovulation. Okay, so these are the components we knew about. When we started this question, this is basically what we knew. There were direct projections from the, G from the clock in the brain to the top level of the reproductive axis. So that was available knowledge. But in our own hands, about 5% of GnRH cells were uh, targeted directly through this mechanism, which is nowhere near enough to stimulate ovulation. So we also knew, and others knew, that estrogen is not acting on GnRH neurons, it's acting somewhere upstream to mediate negative feedback, so I coded this in red, estrogen acts somewhere else in the brain that then talks to the GnRH system to mediate negative feedback. And the way that people were tackling this problem, we're trying to find a system that was negatively regulated by estrogen, magically switched over to being positively regulated by estrogen at the time of the surge, 
And that was the strategy taken for probably the last 20 years, and nobody has been able to find a mechanism that works that way. So we started to envision it as a theoretical mechanism where there's a uh, estrogen element that positively drives the surge for that limited time window. But during most of the rest of the surge, there's got to be an uh, independent system that negatively regulates the generate system to keep it in check, so in red. And a parsimonious solution, well, one, and then that system would have to turn off at the time of the surge to allow for this to happen. So basically, if you're driving um, in order to stop, well, in order to go, you're going to have to release your foot from the brake. You don't want to hit the gas and leave your foot on the brake at the same time. And we think that the driver is the SCN. So a parsimonious solution to the problem would be to have the same clock coordinate positive drive at the same time that it removes negative drive. So this was our theoretical model, just uh, arm, just thinking model, and then we started to try to fill in the pieces. Um, one of the components of the system could be that estrogen directly stimulates this system, or it could work through uh, indirect stimulation. And first we focused on a negative player, because the positive player is a much more difficult question for a variety of reasons, um, but I'll show you some data that we have now. Um, and when we were looking for the negative player, we ran across this paper where uh, Kazu Satsui, who's at Waseda University in Japan, he found a novel inhibitory peptide uh, by stimulating cultured quail pituitary, so pituitaries from these birds, and showed that he could inhibit uh, gonadotropin secretion from these with this novel peptide, which he called gonadotropin inhibitory hormone. So we started collaborating to determine whether or not this was the peptide uh, that estradiol acts on in mammals to uh, regulate negative feedback. Um, initially, we looked at hamsters. I was very interested in hamsters because they're the ideal model system for uh, regulating this. We showed that this peptide is in the brain of mammals. We cloned the gene for the peptide and showed that its uh, gene expression is occurring uh, in the same cell population in which this uh, uh, neurochemical is being expressed, just further validating that it is indeed a mammalian peptide. Um, we confirmed that it's being regulated, uh, regulating the reproductive axis similarly to um, uh, the way it is in birds, but uh, I'll show you it works slightly differently. Uh, if you inject it into the brain, so this is intracerebroventricular, uh, it rapidly, within five minutes, shuts down the reproductive axis, and this effect lasts for up to 30 minutes. So this is in measuring luteinizing hormone. Um, then we wanted to see how does it communicate with the reproductive axis. So you could use a strategy where you just label neurochemicals in the brain with a process called immunohistochemistry, and you could label one, two, three peptides, depending on what you're interested in. And GNRH here, which you've already learned about, is shown in green, and gonadotropin inhibitory hormone is the hormone we were investigating, and we saw that it talked directly to the GNRH system, providing a, a direct neural means of communication to shut down the system. This is just a finer level of analysis uh, uh, to confirm that it was true, true, uh, true contacts. Um, I'm going to skip that. Um, what we wanted to know was if this whole system works this way, it would need to receive communication from the SCN. Um, and one way to determine whether or not it receives communication from the SCN is to use a track tracing technique uh, where you can inject uh, 
with small amounts of electricity, inject a chemical into the SEN that fills cell bodies, and then uh, that chemical gets transported down its axon and tells you where those cells are going. Um, so we use this strategy, and you can see what these really look like. Uh, this is an injection of the tracer into the SCN. Uh, this is the dorsomedial hypothalamus, the area of the brain where those gonadotropin inhibitory hormone cells are located. And you can see that it receives pronounced projections from the SCN. And then you could go in there and probe a little deeper and do the uh, double labeling. So here are those GNIH cells in red, and you can see that they're being talked to directly by the SCN, and about 65% of them are receiving input suggesting important functional significance. Um, since the uh, origin of this finding, we've confirmed that those projections are functional. And then when we looked across the ovulatory cycle, I won't ground you specifically, but this is the day before ovulation, and this is the day of ovulation approaching the time that the animals ovulate, which is around this window right here. And what we did was we looked for the activational pattern of, that's 10 more, right? All right. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So basically uh, what we looked for was the activational state of this system across the ovulatory cycle to determine if at that limited time window during which uh, the surge was occurring to stimulate ovulation, does this system turn off? And you could see that it's turned on, if you look at this marker for cell activation, uh, prior to the surge. It um, uh, is suppressed as the surge approaches, turns off as you'd expect at the time of the surge, and turns back on afterward. So we think it's the negative regulator of estradiol during most of the surge. We have uh, lots of other evidence that I'd uh, be glad to talk about, but I don't have time to continue today. Um, I just wanted to give you a hint for who the positive regulator is, and this is work that we've done more recently within the last three years, um, looking at uh, this complementary peptide called kispeptin. Um, whoops, oh, there is um, a clicker. Um, this complementary peptide was first identified as a tumor metastasis, metastasis suppressor. So it's suppressed metastases of tumors. Uh, so it was originally called metastin. Then the people at Hershey, Pennsylvania started uh, looking at it, which you might guess how it got the name kispeptin. So they identified a reproductive role for it by showing uh, that patients missing the receptor for this uh, hormone or peptide uh, the receptor is called GPR54, and these were individuals who had a, uh, hypogonadism. They never reach puberty. They're adult males whose testes never descend. Uh, they have gynecomastia, a different body shape, and basically they are never reproductively active, and this is the result of the loss of uh, this system working. So we started working on this to determine if it might fill in the positive uh, end of the uh, estradiol stimulation, and we know that now we know that this system has estrogen receptors, so it responds positively to estrogen. If you stimulate this system with estrogen, it actually ramps up secretion, so it provides the perfect role for um, being a positive stimulator of the reproductive axis. And then um, we recently showed that uh, it's receiving input from the SCN, so it could be a time system, and we further showed that it fits all, I, I, I just wanted to give you a broad breaststroke for this, that it fits all the um, criteria for filling in the puzzle like this, 
where we have the SEN sitting at the center, and it, it is essentially providing a balancing act where you um, are controlling the activity of the reproductive axis, particularly the luteinizing hormone surge um, through this positive regulator here and this negative regulator here. I'll try to quickly get through this. Um, what we've been working on recently, and while we were performing all these studies on reproductive health, we've been doing some breast cancer biology, health, and circadian rhythms. We ran across this paper where they looked at female flight attendants, which we were really interested in from a reproductive function level, and they showed that if they worked for an airline that didn't allow recovery time between flights that were across uh, time zones versus an airline that did allow recovery, uh, these women working for this airline that allowed short recovery had smaller right temporal lobes relative to uh, their counterparts, suggesting that there's either cell death or a reduction in new cell birth. Um, you may think new cell birth is a little unusual. Um, the central dogma in neuroscience that was um, originally uh, posed by uh, Cajal, who's one of our founding fathers of the field, doing these exquisite drawings of the cerebellum, he indicated that everything could die, but nothing could be regenerated. And uh, you probably learned 20 years ago, if you were around, um, that we can't get new cells, so be careful with the ones you have. And it turns out that's not exactly true. Um, both it works across mammals the same way. This area of our brain that's important for learning and memory, called the hippocampus, does get new cells on a daily basis, in fact, hundreds. Um, they're born from uh, specialized stem cells that differentiate into neurons, and then they get incorporated into the hippocampus, and these are essential for learning new memories. Um, so when you learn new memories, you get new cells, those new cells form new connections. And it's extraordinarily important for that. What we were interested in was looking at whether or not uh, jet lag uh, in the hamster variety, this is a tired hamster following jet lag, getting out of bed. Um, we looked at whether or not jet lag impacts neurogenesis and their ability to learn and remember. So neurogenesis, the formation of new neurons. So these were animals that were in a static light-dark cycle or jet lagged. We jet lagged them twice a week for a month uh, basically six hours each time, giving them uh, a theoretical flight from New, um, from New York to Paris uh, without the uh, croissant at the end. Um, so <laughs> there's a lot of evidence that the stress hormone cortisol, which is produced by the adrenals, is a negative regulator of neurogenesis, and estrogen is good for neurogenesis. And um, uh, so we controlled for these hormones, but I'll just give you the highlights. Um, this is what a, a basically the number of green cells here are the new cells born in the hippocampus. And we could detect that with a strategy injecting this analog called bromodeoxyuridine, which uh, shows you newly divided cells. So these are basically newly divided cells that uh, by this marker here, this population has matured and been incorporated into the hippocampus. And when you do this jet lag for a month, what you see is that you have these marked, uh, dramatic changes in neurogenesis in a negative direction. The control animals, this is how much they have. Whether we control for stress hormones or estradiol, the magnitude of the suppression is the same. You get this huge reduction in the number of new neurons born. And it has functional consequences. I think I'll just summarize uh, this for you instead. 
what we did was we tested them on a relatively simple learning task. So for those of you who are familiar, we tested them on a condition place preference task. And we tested them two weeks into the jet lag. And not surprisingly, if I jet lagged you twice a week and tested you two weeks into it, you would not perform very well on any task. Um, and they didn't. And we weren't surprised by that. Um, but what we found was that if we stopped the jet lag, and we looked at them a month later. So this is a month after the jet lag has stopped. So you flew back and forth from New York to Paris two times a week for a month. Then you're home for a month. They still cannot perform the task. So it suggests that this brain damage that results in the reduction of new neurons is um, causing major and long-term consequences. So that's uh, the... Sorry for going slightly over. Um, I'd like to thank my lab, my collaborators, um, and uh, be glad to answer any questions if we have time. Uh, the last slide, uh, did you say you tested them a month later? Would you hypothesize, uh, given what you know, that if you had waited a year, or, uh, the recovery would be likely? Yeah, we're, 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 we're interested in that. Um, the balance of the total network of the hippocampus is going to be a function of the balance between cell death and new cell birth. And um, for one, we don't know what's happening to cell death right now. We're assuming it's being increased, and we're looking at that right now. Whether or not you recover, that you ramp up neurogenesis or slow down cell death in order to compensate for this is another question we're pursuing. Uh, this was, yeah, this was published a few months ago, and uh, the, it's uh, the first line of evidence for this type of effect, and we're still pursuing those questions, but it's a really interesting one. But my suspicion would be that you'd recover eventually, but we don't know for sure. Thank you. Yeah. In your, in your research, have you uh, counted the drugs that are specific for, like, shift, work shift Drugs that people use to compensate for shift work, like Ambien or uh, Provigil or something. Yeah. So uh, whether well, whether or not those drugs could ameliorate the impact of jet lag. Um, in general, somnotropics or uh, drugs that. Uh, like Provigil that'll activate your sleep-wake system uh, in times when you're not sleeping well are not the best strategy for overcoming it. Um, most of the somnotropics produce a sleep state that doesn't mimic anything like a sleep state. So if you look at the EEG of an individual who's taking Xanax, for example, to get to sleep at night, they have, a, they have a electrical activity brain pattern that is nothing like REM, nothing like non-REM sleep. You have something completely different. So if sleep is something restorative and something that's a critical for the formation of new neurons, you're probably not doing well with that strategy. A better strategy would be to take something natural like melatonin, which your body produces anyway, and try to synchronize yourself. Uh, the principal problem with shift workers is that uh, everyone always argues to me that if you're a nighttime worker who's working all the time, uh, wouldn't that be fine? And that's not fine either. It turns out, you know, there's millions of years of evolution behind us uh, indicating that we should be operating a, on a diurnal schedule and our physiology should be performed during the day and behavior. Um, and the other problem is that shift workers who work nights only tend to switch over to daytime work uh, 
uh, well, tend to spend time with their families on the weekends and switch over to a daytime schedule. So they're basically shifting themselves 12 hours out of phase every, every five days. Thank you, Lance. Uh, I'm afraid we've got to stay on schedule. Lance will be with us uh, for the rest of the day and tomorrow, so those of you who didn't get to ask your question, I'm sure he'll be uh, happy to talk with you at uh, another point in time. Uh, to introduce our next speaker uh, is the former chairperson of the department, former dean of the graduate school, Dr. Daniel Ziegler. Thank you. A long time ago, I was chair of the department for 19 years, which adds up to about 40% of the entire history of the department. Um, Raymond D. Giuseppe earned his BA in psychology from Villanova in 1971. He received his PhD from Hofstra University in 1975, and then served as a postdoctoral fellow at the Albert Ellis Institute. Dr. DiGiuseppe joined the faculty of St. John's University in 1987 and currently is professor and chair of the Department of Psychology. He has published over 100 books, articles, and chapters, and his current research interest involves the clinical aspects of anger. He serves as the director of professional education for the Albert Ellis Institute and has trained hundreds of therapists in rational emotive behavior therapy and cognitive behavior therapy. He is a fellow of the American Psychological Association and received the Jack Krasner Early Career Contribution Award from the Division of Psychotherapy of the APA. He is a diplomate of the American Board of Behavior Therapy and a diplomate in clinical psychology of the American Board of Professional Psychology. Dr. Giuseppe is the former president of the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, and he serves on the editorial boards of several journals, including Psychotherapy, Theory, Research, Practice, and Training, and the Journal of Rational, Emotive, and Cognitive Behavior Therapy. Ray? So it's a pleasure to be here. You know, when, when I was a student here, there was a rule uh, that I don't know if it still applies, which was you couldn't take clinical psychology or abnormal psychology until you were a senior, and you had taken all the basic science labs. And I guess I want to say that was really a good idea, <laughs> that you can't be a scientist practitioner if you can't be a scientist. And you really can't take science into practice if you don't know science. And as a department chair, I'm always struggling with graduate students and undergraduates who really want to take all the psychopathology and therapy courses and skip those cognitive psych labs. And if there's anything you guys taught me, I've been faithful to that message. So I want to reiterate that, okay? I'm interested in anger. And I know you went over wherever he is. 
We are here to encounter the most outrageous, brutal, dangerous, and intractable of all passions, the most loathsome and unmannerly, nay, the most ridiculous too, and the subduing of this monster will do a great deal towards the establishment of human peace. So said Seneca, the Roman philosopher, 2,000 years ago. He failed in his mission, of course. He was assassinated by Nero uh, for some argument that they had. But he really did a good, uh, good job. And if you want to read the latest interventions on cognitive behavior therapy and anger, Go to Seneca. Not a whole lot has changed in 2,000 years, which is part of my talk. This is really kind of sad. So Seneca had this idea to study anger. Back in 1971, there was a psychiatrist named Rothenberger who said, you know, we don't really pay much attention to anger and that, you know, we have a lot of misconceptions and it's really not paid attention to. And let me tell you, anger is really pissed at being left out of the scientific journals. <laughs> So what are the problems in studying anger? We have a lot of problems. We have less literature to really inform us, and I'll get to that. People question anger status. Is anger really a basic emotion? People have a lot of confusion about what anger is and how anger overlaps with aggression. And people have a lot of questions about how anger is learned, which I'd also like to get to. We have no diagnostic categories for anger in DSM. After you go to DSM, you will find like 11 different ways to have an anxiety disorder and nine different ways to have a depressive disorder, which is reassuring for many of you. But there are very few aggressive and anger disorders. There's intermittent explosive disorders, IED, which has reappeared in the Iraq war as uh, Another an acronym. Okay, more fun. There's confusion about what elements of anger exist. When we developed two anger scales, one for adults and one for kids, what we found is that there were no two anger scales that had already existed that agreed on the same constructs that should be included in a measure. Whether you should have anger in or anger out or verbal aggression or not verbal aggression or rumination or impulsivity, no two scales really agreed on what should be the content that would go in. And so therefore, the face validity of all the scales were really highly different. Um, we have very little treatment outcome study and we have very little data on how treatment progresses. Now, why is this important? I'll tell you why I got interested in anger. I've spent many years at the Albert Ellis Institute. Actually, I'm still there and was there from 1975. It's my Wednesday afternoon gig. I run some anger groups. I run a lot of work. And we were doing work with a place called the Victim Services Board that sent us people who were victims of domestic violence and assault. And we were doing traditional CBT treatment for PTSD victims who were assaulted, and that was going well. And eventually, this group said, would you take the perpetrators? And nobody wanted them. And I have this idea that if you don't treat the perpetrators, you'll have plenty of business with victims. <laughs> that it's an economic decision not to treat the perpetrators. <laughs> okay? And the, the other thing that I want to tell you is, you know, there just about every judge in America wants to send people for anger management. It was a very funny movie. But the number of people that get sent to anger management treatment programs in this country is phenomenal. And you know what? We have no evidence that they work. The primary judicial choice of an intervention for perpetrators of domestic violence is a program called the Duluth Model. This is probably going to make me some enemies, but the Duluth model was developed from feminist philosophy. Meta-analyses of the Duluth model show that its effect size approaches zero. Okay? It doesn't work. So um, we in America put more people in jail than anywhere else in the world, except we're running out of money. And guess what? They're, at least in New York State, you know what they're thinking of doing? Closing the prisons. All those aggressive people are going to be out there with you. 
So I think we need more evidence on what to do with perpetrators. So we have all this less literature. Uh, I put together some charts where I really look at the amount of articles on depression in blue, anxiety in green, and anger. And I think you can see that the amount of articles on diagnosis with anger people is really pretty, pretty low. The number of articles on, excuse me, on um, assessment for anger is really pretty pretty low, and the amount for treatment is, again, really pretty low. We really don't know any. We did, early in our career uh, on studying anger, looked at a meta-analysis of anger treatment studies, and let me tell you one of the things that we found, briefless, is that anger treatments work. They have a meta-analysis effect size, a D statistic of about one, which is one standard degree uh, improvement. However, if you look at CBT interventions for depression or for anxiety, you usually get about two or three. So we're about one-half to one-third as effective treating people with anger management, with, which are good programs, than we are with treating other disorders. And we just really don't know enough. We just really don't know what to do, and that's probably really important. So one of the things that, that I'm going to say is I'm on a mission, and my mission is to influence DSM-6. I know that DSM-5 is coming out, but they think I'm an idiot and they're not going to do what I think is a good idea, uh, although I have had a little influence on the child group that is thinking of changes in the definition of oppositional defiant disorder, and I take that as a little success, okay? And my mission is that we really need a diagnostic category for different disorders that include uh, anger and aggression, because taxonomy is crucial. One of the things I did as an undergraduate here at Villanova was take a course in philosophy of science. There were no psychology majors in it but me, mostly engineers. But I met at Professor Duty and I've stayed clear on that. And you know, the philosophers of science sort of argue that taxonomy is really kind of an important thing. Historians of science talk about that. Nobody would have a good chemistry without the periodic tables. We need a taxonomy. We don't have a real good taxonomy here. And so what we did is one of a, a studies a number of years ago with my dissertation students, we asked a thousand clinical psychologists and psychiatrists in 50 largest cities around the United States, probably Dan Ziegler was one of them, to rate some cases that we made up. We made up a social anxiety case. We made a man version and we made a woman version. We put them in there. Each person got one case. We then took the cases we made. We changed the word anxiety to anger. So we have four groups. One gets an anxiety woman, one gets an anxiety man, one gets an angry woman, one gets an angry man, and we say, could you give us these diagnoses? Let me tell you what happens to clinicians. Most of them get the diagnosis of the anxiety right. 80% get social anxiety. 18% get another anxiety disorder. Only 2% are really off. And in clinical psychologists, that's a pretty good percentile, okay? Only 2% are off. Now we get to the anger cases. They have organic brain, and, and we just said the person was angry and banged their hand once on a table. That will get you the diagnosis of organic brain impairment, you know, psychotic disorder, and 80% uh, of people when they had two diagnostic conditions to pick up from said personality disorder. So I've been sort of arguing for a number of years that we need these kind of diagnoses. One thing we asked our clinicians is we said, does your diagnosis help you plan treatment? If they got the anxiety cases, they said yes. If they got the anger cases, they said no. Does the information we provide you give you enough information to make a diagnosis and develop a treatment plan? They said yes. The angry people said no. Clinicians really don't know what they do. There are two studies, that, two, two things that we asked them here. We said, how many clients, like the one we presented to you, have you seen? And the people that got the anger case 
saw just as many people that had that problem as the people that got the anxiety case. So we have some pretty good evidence from this and another study by Zimmerman that clinicians see a lot of angry clients. What happens is they don't really have a model for what to do with them. They don't have a taxonomy. They obviously don't have assessment devices, and they don't obviously have treatment outcome studies to guide what they do. So it's really hard to be a scientist practitioner in this area. Okay, so anger can really be dysfunctional. One of the places I started, as you can see, uh, thanks to the liberal arts education that I got here, was in philosophy. And you know, if you look at the history of, the, of, of anger and the talk about anger from Aristotle talked about the distinction of anger in and anger out that Charlie Spielberger made famous. That people th see anger as one of the aspects of human functioning that causes disturbance. It's one of the emotional excesses. Except that ends. And that ends around the beginning of the 20th century. And it ends around 1902 or 1903. Two seminal figures in abnormal psychology in those initial five years of the 20th century said anger is really part of mania, mania is really part of depression, anger is really part of depression. Now I'm not asking you to follow that logic, but those two people were Emil Kraepelin and Sigmund Freud. Okay? And so the two seminal figures who started abnormal psychology say anger is really not important. We spent about 10 years reviewing the literature on anger, preparing for a book called Understanding Anger Disorder. And I gotta tell you one of the interesting things that happened. If you look at the anger research, or the anger literature, and I had crates in my attic, as my wife can tell you, of all these anger articles. Half of the articles were about anger as a, ba as a basic emotion and anger as a clinical phenomenon. And the clinical phenomenon said it's all related to depression and it's really not uh, very, very good. So anyway, we have this problem of definition, and one of the problems we have of definition is that people confuse anger, aggression, and hostility. I won't go into definitions we have, but people confuse them. They use these terms interchangeably. Um, I sort of talked about this area. So Seneca was really the first to argue that anger could be a disorder back in uh, AD, and he used a term, bravest furor, that if you follow classical philosophy over the years, gets used quite a lot. Bravest Fuhrer is Latin for temporary madness. So should we have a diagnostic entity for anger? And uh, as I said, we think so. And we've actually uh, written an argument where we say, given the, um, the Wakefield's definition that a disorder is a harmful dysfunction, we make an argument that, that anger really is harmful and dysfunctional. Most people who are angry really don't function very well. If you ask people when they have an anger episode, how does it turn out, it really doesn't turn out so well. If you ask people when they have an anger, anger episode, what are their motives, really usually doesn't happen so well. They have several motives and some of their motives really aren't so, so uh, great. So what I want to focus on here is two really big theoretical points that our research has sort of focused on about what's important with anger and about what needs to be included in our assessments, diagnosis, and treatments. And that's a, what's missing in the traditional description of anger. And the first answer is revenge. Um, I've become rather friendly with the chair of the English department. And uh, I've really learned that if you want to study revenge, don't go to the psychology department. Go to the English department. Because they really talk about revenge. They really talk about it all the time. And as a matter of fact, the first piece of literature in Western civilization is um, Orestes. It was about anger. We sort of lose that. We have the revenge tragedy of the Renaissance. We have revenge in opera. We have Hamlet. We have movies. We have all this. Here's kind of the interesting thing. When we've developed measures of anger, we've included motives. 
Now, most people, when they, they develop uh, psychological assessments here, they consider the stimulus, the things that trigger the emotion, the, re the reaction. They consider the cognitions. They consider what people do. And sometimes they consider the consequence. But what is the motive that people are interested in, in anger? And the interesting thing that we found is talking to clients, they love the revenge. They really wanted to get even. And there's some data that's come from some neuropsychologists in Geneva that says when you put people in a game situation, like the Prisoner's Dilemma game, and you do a functional MRI when they're playing the game, just before and while they're delivering the revengeful retaliation, you get light up of the reinforcement areas of the brain. So I remember Byron doing that with rats, uh, reinforcing them when we were in the NCAA finals. You could get even rats to play basketball, <laughs> okay? And that reinforcement area is really strong, and this seems to be really important. What we've, so, so the big things in college life used to be just sex and drugs and rock and roll, but I think sex, drugs, rock and roll, and revenge. What we have found is that when we cluster analyze all sorts of clients, we have a cluster analysis we've done of 2,000 clinical cases, the aggressive behaviors cluster on revenge. They factor on revenge. Remember, we do factor analysis or cluster analysis. So revenge seems to be one of the really key reinforcers that we've left out of our assessments and we left out of our, our interventions. Now, I have to tell you, um, knowing this about revenge, there are some suggestions of what to do with therapy. Some people say, well, maybe we have to do forgiveness, you know, and that certainly are some people who advocate forgiveness. There's the Forgiveness Institute. There's uh, certainly people argue that when you uh, learn things and people hurt you, you can never forget, and people always say forgive and forget. Well, you can't forget when people hurt you. That's just not the case. Um, and so I, I want to sort of, sort of talk about revenge, but I want to talk about some th interesting things that, that we're doing. If revenge is really a reward and is reinforcing at the neurological level when you just think about getting it, how do we make it unreinforcing? How do we intervene? I don't have an answer to this yet, <laughs> okay? But I'm going to say that this is really one of the major problems we have in treatment of aggression. We have a powerful reinforcement that we really don't know what to do about. Sometimes we can use social problem-solving interventions to help people consider what are the consequences when they do the aggressive acts and get them to focus on that. And we've just published an article where we've had shown that we can get, in addition to other changes, a reduction in our revenge subscale. So by thinking of consequential thinking and treating that, we think you can get that about. I'm kind of doing some experiments on some other things. Sort of, I'm doing some N of 1 data analysis on some things that I don't think a lot of people should do yet and that is reinforcement satiation. You know, back in the 1960s and 70s, a guy named Ted Ione did some work with psychotic patients. You know, there was a psychotic patient that he wrote about who wanted to collect towels, and he would put all these towels in his room. And so what they would do to treat him is give him more towels and more towels and more towels and more towels, so he had enough towels and he was sated, and he stopped doing that. This treatment has been used for the treatment of sex offenders. Give them more fantasies of the dysfunctional or atypical activity that they want to do, and it works. We're kind of doing this with some aggressive people that want, fan, want, want revenge. We're asking them to, fan, uh, to, to fantasize revenge and see what they get. And we have some interesting results. So we're using sort of not a treatment design. I wouldn't recommend you do it yet. But I think that this is a real big problem that we have. If, if reinforcement for revenge is so linked to aggressive acts and anger, how do we intervene there? 
And so the two suggestions that we have so far are consequential thinking and social problem solving, cognitive behavior therapies, and possibly insatiation, or at least fantasy satiation. And um, we can talk about that. The second is the issue of coercion as a motive. Uh, there's an interesting issue about aggression, and that is there's this common theory that's been going around for a long time, especially in the treatment of children's aggression, which is a distinction between instrumental and affective aggression. Instrumental aggression is, is, is aggression that is operantly reinforced. It's supposedly non-emotional. You don't have the emotion. So if I beat you up and take your wallet, I'm in it for the money. And then that's the reinforcement that does it. There really is no reward or no affective component. Affective aggression or reactive aggression is, emotion, is aggression that's produced by the emotion of anger. It's usually believed to be impulsive, okay? So the idea is aggression that is thought about is really not emotional. Well, we decided to study that by, by developing some scales. You know, when you get angry, does your anger get people to do what you want? You know, I can control people by being angry and having an anger outburst. And we look at these, co we call them sort of coercive um, subscales. And we, we look at those coercive scales, what we see is they're very strongly related in anger. And you know what? They're really not included. And we just presented a poster that, uh, at ABCT, Association for Advancement Behavior Therapy, where we, we crossed different methodologies of asking this question on different populations, giving us about 5,000 subjects, some prisoners, some sex offenders, some college students, some outpatients. And what we found was that the biggest predictors of aggression were coercion and revenge, revenge first. We also tested another popular theory in cognitive behavior therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy called uh, experiential avoidance, which is a common element, and we found that did not predict very well at all, so that one cognitive intervention doesn't seem to be appropriate for anger. So we think that coercion really is a motive, that people get angry, and anger as an affective reaction is operantly reinforced. And I think that this is kind of really important, that the, the emotional experience is operantly reinforced. Now, wh why is this important? Well, remember I said one of the things we don't know is how anger is learned? Um, when I started to review the literature on anger, I came across loads of articles that said, anger is learned through operant and classical conditioning. Sort of like one of those nice statements. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I can understand how it's learn through operant conditioning, that sort of makes sense. You, 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 you get angry, you have a temper tantrum, you know, I yell at my kids and they do their homework. I yell at my kids and they take out the trash, you know? That, that, that makes sense. What about operant conditioning? Well, I spent about a year trying to find every possible search terms from classical conditioning and anger and aggression that I could possibly do. I found three studies. One study said that you could classically condition anger, or at least aggressive behavior, in kissing grommies. You know those fish that you? Another was beta fighting fish. And another was a guy named Spencer who said, they tried uh, for a long time to, uh, to classically condition these reactions in rats, and they gave up. And sort of one of the few negative results in, in the literature. Now, why is this important? I think it really is important for a major reason. What I have noticed is that when people develop anger management treatment programs, they take a anxiety management treatment program, and they say, anger is a lot like anxiety. Let's use this. 
And what they do is they use the same interventions. They, they use the same cognitions. They challenge those cognitions. And they use the same kinds of exposure. In cognitive behavior therapy, the treatment of choice for anxiety disorders is exposure. And what you do, if you go downtown to Edna Foa's lab, you'll find that when people are afraid, you get them to re-experience the feared stimulus, the stimulus that triggers. You have them feel the emotion, and you have them hold it as long as possible. Right? And if you do that, the anxiety goes away. Now, if anger is not classically conditioned, should that work? And do you want to sit across an angry person and ask them to imagine the thing that pisses them off and have them hold it, that feeling, as long as possible? I don't. Um, we, we, we have, uh, have two, two ways of evidence to sort of look at this. Uh, we did this meta-analysis of anger treatment, and one of my dissertation students said, oh yes, anger should work, we should like experience the anger and it'll go away. And so we went back and we recoded all the articles on whether or not there was a exposure intervention, and what the instructions were. Were the instructions to feel and hold the, the anger, or were, was it to do something else? And what we found that there was a correlation that dummy dummy coded. Yes, they held, they, they gave instructions to hold the anger. No, they didn't. If they did, there was a 0.56 correlation with that dummy coded variable and the effect size, but it was negative. In other words, you had less successful treatments by asking people to hold that anger and really experience it. I have a dissertation student now where we're working on some college students who have anger problems and we're trying to give imagery uh, exercises to challenge anxiety and anger and to see whether holding it or not holding it or doing something else. So I think what we do about learning uh, really matters and that we're trying to develop some different interventions about basic learning phenomena that occur in language. So here we have this instrumental aggression. We have, we've asked these instrumental aggression questions and we think that coercion and revenge are the two major motivations for anger. They tend to, we think, operate in a operantly reinforcing rather classical conditioned way and uh, changed our interventions accordingly. The next issue is this issue of rumination. Remember I said that the instrumental affective or reactive aggression theory that has been around for a good 25 years or more argues that affective aggression is impulsive. People have poor impulse control. And you can always find a study that shows murderers who have frontal lobe deficits and therefore have impaired um, impulsivity. And what we did is that we've added some statements about, some subscales, about impulsivity. When I'm angry, I can't control my behavior. I just act without thinking about it. And they have good correlation with some other impulsivity uh, uh, acts. And what we have found was, we put them in our studies. But we also knew that we had all these clients that we've been talking to. And the clients report to us that they think about the things that they're angry about a lot. So we created equal number of anger rumination items. And so we had this sample. We had 2,000 subjects, 1,000 normals, 1,000 clinical. We put these items in. We do the factor analysis. And I'll tell you what happened. The impulsivity and rumination items loaded on the same factor. 
And I said, oh, that must make sense. One's positive, one's negative, because impulsivity and rumination should be the opposite. No, they were both positively loaded. So what we have found is if we look at scatter plots of rumination and impulsivity, we find that about 4% of the population, for 2,000 subjects, have high impulsivity with average or low rumination. And maybe about another 4 or 3% of the population has high rumination without impulsivity. But the majority of the time, it's on a pretty good line, that the more you ruminate, the more you're impulsive. So that the impulsivity factor might really be an experience, but not a diminished cognitive capacity. Why is this important? It's important for one reason. Since 1975, Ray Novako published his dissertation on a cognitive behavioral intervention for anger problems. That intervention was based on the idea of impulsivity, that you use self-instructional training developed by Don Meichenbaum to give people self-statements to calm or to counteract their impulsivity. That has been the most frequently referenced treatment for any anger problems in the last 35 years. But impulsivity seems to be linked to rumination. <laughs> and what we find is if one, again, we, we, we have these cluster analysis, different, if, you look at, if you look at a book of MMPI subtypes, we sort of have that for anger clients. And we have very high impulsivity, but it's usually matched by very high rumination. We have only one out of 13 clusters that has high impulsivity without high rumination, which means that people are thinking, I can't stand that bitch, I can't stand that. And they're thinking about it, and they're thinking about it, and they're thinking about it, and then they, they lose it. Um, so we think that rumination is a cognitive process related to the psychopathology of anger and aggression problems. We think that this idea of impulsivity is really a recent addition, or it's a phenomenological experience. It may make it worse, but really there's rumination. We sort of consulted with uh, Susan Nolan Hexima, who is the person at Yale who did all the research on depression and rumination, and she's actually changed her tune. She used to say that rumination was something that women did to cause their depression. And she now says rumination is probably related to all forms of psychopathology. People who are have anxiety disorders ruminate about what they're worried about. People who have substance abuse disorders ruminate about that next drink that we're going to have later on this afternoon. <laughs> People who have anger, you know, anger disorder problems ruminate about the injustices that they have. And so we've switched from using Navaco's model of, the, uh, of impulse disorder treatment to really looking at challenging the rumination. So that's some of the things that we've done. So we think that our results of, of our development of anger as a clinical problem have shown us that there are some things about the model of anger and aggression that just don't make sense. Revenge is really important. Impulsivity is less important. Rumination may be more important. The disorder in DSM that people tend to use the most when they have an angry or aggressive client is IED, or intermittent explosive disorder. And we have pretty much said that we think that that's not really appropriate because you don't have to be impulsive. You can really ruminate. And think about all the terrorists who scare us, all the school shootings. They didn't impulsively smuggle six guns and hand grenades into their high school. It was a well thought out thing that they ruminated about. So in addition to that, what we've done is we have developed a set of anger scales. 
we have done a cluster analysis of this, and we've sort of proposed a form of a diagnostic disorder, which is pretty much modeled after ADHD. We think that there is an anger problem with internalizing anger, that people have internalizing anger without aggression. We think that there is a group of people that probably look like IED, that they, when they, they don't get angry often, but when they do, they really explode, but that the majority of people have a combined type. They have internalizing and externalizing. And when we do our cluster analysis, we get 13 different clusters, but each one of those clusters forms into one of those three groups. So we think we have some evidence. We, we've now developed a structured interview that we um, are using sort of a different format to confirm these results, and we have a pretty large sample, just submitted an article on that to aggressive behavior. So any questions on anger? It's question time, right? Yeah, it is yes. question time. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we've got uh, about four minutes or so, so we've got time for several questions. Yes, sir. Um, and I, don't want to I would say give up the scotch, not the yeah, same. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> that was my first question. So I'll move on to my second. And I don't want to be misunderstood here or misinterpreted, but wouldn't just the category of premeditated murder tell you much of what you've stated about rumination and subsequent? I, I would agree with you, but how come psychologists haven't paid attention to that? I mean, you're obviously right, but if I tell you that if you look at all the anger scales that have existed up until ours, there's not one item about revenge and not one item about rumination, so that they have not been included, and there's not one treatment manual that, that it addresses any of those elements. So I don't think I've discovered anything. I just went to the English department and learned a few things. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, and the rumin and the, that consequence is I'm going to hurt that person. I'm going to get revenge. So you may be ruminating about the revenge. There, there is a link. There's a guy named Roy Baumeister who's a uh, at Florida State. who's a personality psychologist, and, and and he has this idea of self-control is like a muscle. So think about this. I'm controlling hitting the faculty members I'm most upset about. And I'm really thinking about what idiots they are and how much I really want to hurt them. And I'm holding myself back and I'm holding myself back. And it's like an isometric exercise. Eventually, what happens to my muscles after doing this for two hours? It gives out. So, so that's sort of the model that I think makes the most sense in terms of treatment. We can make your muscles stronger or we can get you to stop ruminating. Yes, and I, th I, I, think, I think you're correct, and I think that that may be one of the next phases that we have to go along to. If you look at all the rumination psychopathology literature that, that Susan Nolan Hexma has done, there are usually rumination experiments about depression and anxiety, and that that's maybe an important distinction that we don't yet know. So there's some other things to do. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm intrigued by your ideas on You don't want any revenge. I don't believe you. Uh, it seems to me, from, from introspection, that what is rewarding is the prediction of revenge. More than after we found the guy who was fooling around with our girlfriend and we punched them in the face, he's somewhat. No, see, see, I, I don't know how many. I, I don't know how many aggressive people that you interview. 
No, 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 right. Right, and so I do. You know, I, I have this case recently of this man. He's about 48 years old, and his, his young daughter of 21 took a job and was sexually harassed at work, and he was upset for so long. He eventually found out where the boss lived, went to the boss's house, rang his doorbell, and punched him in the face. And I have to tell you, he told this story in our group, and the group members applauded. <laughs> and he said how good it felt, okay? And, and this was the problem. It felt so good to hit the guy who sexually harassed your daughter that it's hard for him to think about not getting revenge. You see, it really is rewarding. Yes, ma'am. So in other words, is, are you saying, can you have a surrogate perform the yeah. revenge for you? Um, I don't know. I haven't really studied that, but uh, I have to go back and watch some reruns of The Godfather. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, um, I, I think that it's possible, but that is an injury. Could there be um, sort of um, revenge that is vicarious? Yes. That's an interesting question. We don't know that yet. We're out of time. Okay. Uh, we, you know, I'm sorry, when you become an administrator, time becomes way more important. <laughs> um, but we do need to stay on schedule. We've got a, a short break, and the panel discussion on uh, non-academic careers in psychology will commence at 4 o'clock. Thank you.